Well, good morning, Grace. Like I said last week, it is great to be back here at Grace Bible Church. It's great to be back in the great city of Dallas. Uh, my family and I were just um, living it up here as we get reacclimated into a city like Dallas. Um, one of the things we've missed, the energy and excitement, is uh, being in a place like Dallas with all the professional sports teams. Uh, just this past week, my family, I didn't get to go, but my family went to uh, watch a Rangers game, and they got beat, which is a common occurrence uh, these days. But uh, they got to go to the new ballpark. It's air-conditioned, for crying out loud. I mean, it's an air-conditioned stadium. They got to enjoy a hot dog and cotton candy and enjoy all the sights and sounds and smells of a day at the ballpark. Excited to be back in Dallas. Excited that in a few months, football season starts. Who's excited for football season and for the Cowboys? I know it's kind of challenging to get tickets, and so uh, in order to show my excitement this morning, I'm going to do something that perhaps has never been done at Grace Bible Church. To show just how excited I am for the Cowboys season, I'm going to preach in a Cowboys jersey. Uh, I'm excited to be back in Dallas. I'm excited uh, to show our support for the Cowboys. You know, one of the things we do if you're a sports fan is you like to do things like wear a jersey to show your team pride, to put your team on display. Some people wear jerseys. Some of you probably have sports memorabilia that you've decorated with for your house in your house. Some people even get tattoos, right? Permanent displays of their love for a particular team. But everywhere we go, we like to represent our favorite teams. And everywhere we go, we're supposed to represent our Lord. Everywhere we go, we bear God's image. Everywhere we go, People should know whose team that we're on, not because of our logos, but because of our lifestyle. Not because of our clothing, but because of our conduct. Not because of our brand, but because of our behavior. And that's exactly what we're going to see as we continue this series, this joy in the journey of what it means to follow Jesus. And I want you to open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 5 as we take a look at a very familiar passage together this morning. We take a look at Jesus' call, his invitation through this passage, which is often called the Beatitudes. We're going to see here in Matthew 5 that we are called to be salt and light. We're called to be people who represent God. We're called to be people who put him and his glory on display. And this is our mission, our calling in a fallen world. So again, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, open up to Matthew chapter 5. And as you're turning there, you can see the outline there in your bulletin. Three major things we're going to look at together this morning. Number one. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, we're going to see our attitude. The attitude that we are to have as followers of Jesus everywhere we go. And if we have that attitude, the number two on your outline, we're going to see the influence. Our influence that we have in this world in which we live. And the number three, we'll talk about our application, how we live this out today. Again, as you're turning to Matthew chapter 5, let me say from the very beginning that 
there's a ton of debate about how exactly we approach the Sermon on the Mount. Scholars, people much more intelligent than I am, have gotten into endless debate about exactly how we approach the Beatitudes and the whole Sermon on the Mount. And in fact, one commentator I read this week said that there are 36 distinct ways to approach the Sermon on the Mount. And so for the next hour, I'm going to review for you all 36 ways that scholars throughout history haven't interpreted this book. Not really. I think we make it far too complicated. So let's just jump into the text and take a look at what Jesus says here. Number one on your outline, let's take a look first at our attitude. Let me read for you Matthew chapter 5. Let's start with verse 1. Matthew records this. He says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, blessed. Let's pause right there. So Jesus goes up on this mountain. He sees his disciples. He calls his disciples to them, and he begins now teaching them. And he begins with that word blessed or blessed. This word, blessed, it's a great word. It, it means fortunate or privileged, or you could translate it, some people have translated it as happy. But this word describes a, a state of well-being. It's loosely, you could translate it as, it will go well with you if. It will go well with you if. It describes this inner contentedness that's not affected by outside circumstances. Dr. Pentecost, who used to pastor here at Grace, says that this word blessed, Jesus relates it to holiness. He says happiness and holiness are inseparably united. In other words, in the teaching of Jesus that we're going to see this morning, Jesus is offering, he is presenting the happy life. Now, all of us are pursuing the happy life in one way or another because we all know that life is not happy. Life is, in fact, filled with pain, right? The great philosopher, the dread pirate Roberts in the movie The Princess Bride famously said, life is pain, highness. Anyone who says differently is just selling you something. And throughout our life, people try to sell us things in order to package happiness in a bottle or in whatever, and we buy these things, we consume these things, thinking that they are going to make us happy. But notice what Jesus says here. Jesus presents the truly happy life to us, but everything Jesus says here is countercultural. Along the way, I want us to pause and really let the words of Jesus sink in. Because notice what Jesus says about the truly happy life. Notice this, verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. This is the exact opposite of what our world says, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. No, the, the, our world says blessed are the proud in spirit, right? 
But Jesus says, no, blessed are the poor in spirit. The word for poor here, by the way, describes a beggar, a person who cowers back and shrinks back in fear. But Jesus here is describing not financial poverty. He's describing poverty of spirit. Notice what he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. This phrase describes a person who approaches God recognizing their spiritual lostness, their hopelessness, their helplessness, who comes to God as a beggar, desperate for God to shower them with the riches of his grace, mercy, and forgiveness. And it's no accident that Jesus begins this sermon with this. Because we have to start here. We have to approach God in recognition of our spiritual lostness. We have to approach him as one who is poor in spirit. And notice what Jesus promises. For those who approach him with poverty of spirit, he says, here's the promise. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who approach God with a poverty of spirit, Jesus says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this, in many ways, is the gospel. We have to begin here. And for those watching online or for anyone here in this room, if you've not approached God in this way, if you've not come to Jesus recognizing your spiritual poverty and turning to him for the free gift of his grace and forgiveness, I want to give you the opportunity right now to do just that, right where you are, right where you're seated, to recognize that uh, in Jesus, God will give you the forgiveness of your sins and the riches of his grace. But it all begins here. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Second, notice what he says, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. Happy are the sad, in other words. Again, at some point you think, really, Jesus? This is the exact opposite of what the world tells me. Happy are the sad Blessed are those who mourn. The word for mourn is often in the New Testament connected with the idea of mourning over our sin. Mourning over our sinfulness. And Jesus says you're blessed if you do. I love what one commentator says on this verse. He says, too few Christians sincerely grieve for their sin. We have become hardened, not just to the sin around us, but even more sadly to the sin within us. Do we grieve over our sin? Well, notice what Jesus promises. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The word for comfort here means to come alongside of or to speak encouragingly to, to cheer up. And for those who mourn over our sin, God promises to come alongside of us, comforting us. We know the reality of the gospel is that Jesus has not only paid the penalty for our sin, but he, by the Spirit, also enables us to overcome the power over sin. And one day he will return to save us from the very presence of sin itself. What's more comforting than that? The promise that 
We're saved or redeemed from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin. Verse 5, Jesus goes on and he says, Blessed are the gentle or the meek. Blessed are the meek. This word for meek is used to describe a wild animal that's been tamed. Describes power under control. And Jesus says, blessed are the gentle. Gentleness here refers to a person who has, they possess power and influence, but they don't use it for their own selfish agenda. They actually use it for the benefit of other people. Jesus says, blessed are the gentle. Why? Because they will inherit the earth. There's the promise. So often we spend our days exerting whatever power and influence we have to build our own little kingdoms. But here Jesus says, listen, if you're gentle, if you're meek, if you use your power and your influence for the benefit of others, yours is. Uh, You shall inherit the earth. You will inherit the earth. We know that one day Jesus will return. He'll establish his kingdom. And Throughout the New Testament, we see this idea that as followers of Jesus, we will actually rule with him. He will entrust areas of his kingdom over to us, to the meek, to the gentle. Verse 6, Jesus continues. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Satisfied are the starving, you could say. I don't know if you've ever been really hungry or really thirsty. If you've gone far too long without food, without some good water, and you know that in those moments, the all-consuming thought is to find something to eat, to find something to drink. And similarly, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, who are starving for righteousness. Notice why. Here's the promise, for they shall be satisfied. Now again, the lie of the world in which we live tells us that we are to long for, we are to starve for debauchery, right? For pleasure, for power, for whatever. And these are things that are quite elusive. They never quite... We never quite get them in our grasp. They always seem to slip through our fingers. But here Jesus says to the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, you will find what you're looking for. You will be satisfied. Practically, this means that every decision we make is run through the filter of him. We have this all-consuming passion and desire for him, and nothing else even gets our attention. Jesus continues in verse 7. He says, blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the merciful. For they shall receive mercy. This is perhaps the most straightforward of what Jesus says. Those who show mercy will receive mercy. Mercy is a heart of compassion, a heart of love extended towards people who are in need. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. Verse 8, he says, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. The word for pure here is used to describe unalloyed metals. 
unalloyed metals. A heart, a pure heart is a heart that is an unalloyed heart. It's 100% devoted to God. It's not corrupted by idolatry. Blessed are the pure in heart, Jesus says. Why? Because they will see God, a sign of fellowship with him. Once again, the world in which we live, the fallen, dark, dead world in which we live tells us that happiness is found in debauchery and sinful living, right? Open any newspaper, watch any TV show these days, and that's the message that we're being told. But here Jesus actually says, happy are the holy. True happiness, true fulfillment is found in the purity of heart. It's found in holiness, Verse 9, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Sons of God here is a title of honor. And Jesus says that title of honor goes to the peacemakers, people who pursue and make peace where other relationships have been broken. And then finally notice verses 10 through 12. Perhaps the most countercultural of all, Jesus says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And then notice this rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Our life is filled with avoiding discomfort. And yet here Jesus says, blessed are the persecuted. To rejoice in persecution. Why? Because your reward in heaven is great. This doesn't mean, by the way, that we actively pursue persecution. It just means that as we live a life that's glorifying to God, we can expect persecution to follow. But rejoice, Jesus says, because your reward in heaven is great. Now, I know this is a very fast overview of the Beatitudes here. You could easily spend weeks on each and every one of them, but here's the gist of it all. Here is the attitude that should characterize us as followers of Jesus as we live in this broken world. This is Jesus' description of the happy life. This series we've entitled Joy in the Journey. The joy in the journey of following Jesus, of living our life to glorify him, to please him, a life of faith and obedience to him. And here we see the happy life that Jesus offers to us. And now I want you to ask the question, what if we all, all of the time, actually live this way? Because I don't, you don't. We get pulled and sucked into the lies of the world. But what if we all, all the time, actually lived this way? What would happen? What would be the influence that we have in this world? To answer that question, I want you to look at number two on your outline as we take a look at Matthew 5, 13 through 16. If we all lived this way, notice the influence it would have. Matthew 5, 13 through 16, Jesus continues and says, You 
are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. So let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Again, very famous verses. This imagery of salt and light. Salt and light. And once again, scholars have debated and argued back and forth over exactly what Jesus means with this salt and light imagery. And I'm not going to take the time to go through every possible way that this salt and light imagery has been interpreted over the years. Even by previous pastors of Grace Bible Church, we haven't all agreed on exactly what Jesus means here. Let me share with you what I think is going on. I think it's all tied to geography. At the very least, this is my very pathetic attempt to convince you to go to Israel. Uh, Andy's leading a couple trips to Israel. I promise you that I'm going to be leading trips to Israel in the future. And I think what Jesus has in mind here is actually tied to the geography of the land. Because if you go to the traditional site where we believe Jesus delivered this Sermon on the Mount, it's on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. And if you're standing there where the people would have been, If you look directly south, there were two major cities that were within view. If you're standing at the north shore of the Sea of Galilee and you look south, about in this direction right here was a city called Magdala, and about a city right about here was a city called Tiberias. Now Magdala, you're familiar with. You just may not know it. But we know about Magdala because of Mary the Magdalene or Mary of Magdala. Magdala in Jesus' day, the name Magdala, by the way, means fish tower. And Magdala was the major center of exporting fish throughout this entire region. And so fishermen would catch fish in the Sea of Galilee, and they would take their boats over to the fish tower, to Magdala, and they would then sell their fish there to different merchants. And before the days of refrigeration, the way you preserved fish in order to export them around the world is you would salt them. And archaeologists have discovered that there at Magdala, there would have been mounds of salt probably brought in from the Dead Sea that merchants then would have used to salt these fish and to send them throughout the world. So my theory is that Jesus is standing on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. He points to Magdala and says, you are the salt of the earth. And then he turned and he pointed to Tiberius. And he said, you are the light of the world. Because Tiberius was the biggest city in the upper Galilee region in the time of Jesus. It was a Roman city built after, uh, built by Herod Antipas and Otter of a man named Tiberius. It was the Roman capital of Galilee, the most important city in the area. And Tiberius was actually built on the top of a hill. And on the very top of a hill was a palace called the Golden House. And you can only imagine the light that would have reflected off as the sun hit 
the golden house. It literally was a city set on a hill. This golden house was 500 feet higher than anything else around it. I think that Jesus pointed to Tiberius when he uttered these words. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Again, I might be wrong. But even if I am, I want you to notice the point of what Jesus is saying. Notice the point of what Jesus is saying here. Notice again verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. So what does Jesus mean with this salt and light imagery? You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. He uses this absurd illustration of, you know, you're the salt of the earth, but if salt becomes tasteless, then what do you do with it? Or you're the light of the world, but you don't put a lamp or under a basket, you shine it for all people to see, right? Jesus is intentionally using this kind of absurd language and illustration to make a point. What's funny is this week I was uh, reading a number of commentators, uh, commentaries on the Gospel of Matthew, and um, uh, those of you who knew me 10 years ago, you knew that my goal in life was actually academics. I didn't see myself as a pastor. I wanted to be a professor. I love academics. I like digging into the academic articles and seeing all the debate. But this week, I actually laughed out loud when I read a few commentators uh, this particular week on this verse. Because as they're talking about Jesus' language here of salt losing its taste... Sometimes people in academics get lost in their own intelligence. A number of commentators actually spend time, and they're talking about how technically speaking, sodium chloride cannot not be sodium chloride. It's a stable compound, you see, and so Jesus is wrong when he says that salt can become saltless. And ladies and gentlemen, that is an example of missing the point. Jesus here is not giving a lesson in science. And Jesus here is using, I believe, an absurd illustration to drive home the point. That just like salt cannot not be salt, just like light cannot help but shine, so we as believers should reflect the reason we were created. Salt was created to be salty. Light was created to shine. And you and me, as people who have been created in the image of God, need to reflect the reason why we were created. Notice what Jesus says. Here's really the point. Here's the command of this entire passage we see in verse 16. Here's the command, the point of it all. Jesus says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. The point of everything Jesus is saying here is actually to point out the absurdity of people who don't actually live the way Jesus has just described. 
when we take a step back and look at these 16 verses, when we put this entire passage together, we see the reason we are here is to show the world how great God is, to show our excitement, not for the cowboys, but for our creator. To put on display, not our pride in a particular sports team, but to put on display the king. And in Jesus' words here, he's showing us that if we are indistinguishable from the fallen world around us, if we're not living out our purpose, then we are just as worthless as saltless salt or hidden light. That's our mission in a fallen world. That's the reason we're here, is to reflect him, to be salt and light in a dead and dark world. I love what John Stott says on this verse. He says, when society does go bad, we Christians tend to throw our hands in the air and blame the evilness of our culture. But we can hardly hardly blame unsalted meat for going bad. It can't do anything else. The real question, he says, is where is the salt? Where is the light shining brightly into the spiritual and moral darkness around us? Listen, as believers, we are salt and light. This is part of our identity, who God has created us to be. We're essential. We have a purpose. We need to reflect the reason we're created. And to live in any other way, according to Jesus, is totally absurd. It makes no sense, like saltless salt and lightless light. What we see here in Matthew chapter 5 is that we need to practice our purpose. We need to fulfill our function. We need to reflect the reason we're created. And so how do we do that? Let's take a look at number three on your outline as we talk about application. If we want to be the salt and light that God has created us to be, if we're going to live this radically different life that we see Jesus describe here in the Beatitudes, if we live out our purpose in this dead and dark world, notice what Jesus says. We do this, not so that the attention gets on us. Verse 16, again, we don't live in such a way that people see our good works and glorify us. We live in such a way that people see what we do, our good works, and actually glorify our God who is in heaven. What Jesus is calling us to here is to live in such a way that unbelievers around us are curious. We're distinct. We're markedly different. That we're offering something different than what the world is offering. Because again, you open any newspaper or you go on to any news website, take your pick, And it's as plain as day that the world in which we are living is broken. It's as plain as day that the world in which we live is in need of redemption. And the world keeps telling us, it keeps trying to sell us its solutions to this problem. How we can live the happy life in this broken world in which we live. But here Jesus offers offers the only real solution, the only real way to live. And it really comes down to the fact that we can either get sucked into the vortex of the world around us, or we can live this transformed life into which Jesus calls us. 
just for the sake of a question, let me ask you, can you really imagine what it would be like if all of us all the time lived this way? If all of us, by the Spirit of God, by the power of God, the resurrection life of Jesus, if we all actually all the time lived in this way. It sounds impossible. But I want to share with you one of my favorite writings outside of the New Testament, outside of the Scripture. It's a, a letter written in the second century. It's called the Epistle to Diognetus. And it's written describing the influence that Christians had in that time and place. Let me read for you these very encouraging words. When we think that living this way is impossible, listen to the epistle of Diognetus. It says, For the Christians are distinguished from other men, not by country or language or the customs which they observe, but they're distinguished and display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking manner of life. And then here it is. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men, yet are persecuted by all. They're unknown, yet condemned. They're put to death, yet restored to life. They're poor, yet make many rich. They are lacking of all things, and yet abound in all things. They're dishonored, and yet in their dishonor, they're glorified. They're spoken evil of, and yet justified. They are reviled, and yet blessed. They are insulted, yet repay insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished... They rejoice as if quickened into life. They are attacked by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks. And here's my favorite line. Those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. Those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. To me, this sounds like a community of believers in the second century who were living out the Sermon on the Mount. There on the bottom of your, or the back side of your outline, I've given you your application questions for this week. And like I said last week, every week, every sermon, I'm going to give you some application questions. But because I know you're busy, if you have time for nothing else, here's the one thing that I ask you to do this week. I want you to look for an opportunity Ask God to bring an opportunity in your life to live out your identity as salt and light in your places of influence, your house, your neighborhood, your workplace. How can you reflect the glory of God to someone through living out your identity in Christ? Well, again, I am ready for football season. I'm excited to see what the Cowboys have in store. And because I know tickets are almost impossible to get, what I'm really looking forward to is watching the Cowboys on TV. And years ago, commentators came up with a genius idea in order to get us to tune into the game hours ahead of time. And it's the pregame show, right? 
I love the pregame show before Monday night football, before a big football game, because in the pregame show, everybody gets all hyped up. You get all the pregame predictions. You get the pregame analysis. You get the history of players and team rivalries. The entire point of the pregame show is to build up the hype, to build up the expectation, to get everyone excited for kickoff. Ladies and gentlemen, your life is the pregame show. The resurrection life in you is the pregame show. One day the actual game is going to start when Jesus returns to set up his kingdom. But until then, you are the pregame show to get everyone excited for the real thing. As you reflect the attitude of the Beatitudes, as Christ's life is lived in you, as you influence the world as salt and light. One day the big show is coming to town. And as we live our life, the way in which we live should draw people in to ask, listen, where can I get a ticket to the game? And then you get to tell them the greatest news ever said, that you don't have to buy a ticket. You can come for free because the price has already been paid. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son, for sending our Savior to be the to pay the penalty of our sin. And thank you, Father, that in the forgiveness of our sins, you also offer to us the power and the freedom to live for you. Father, I pray for myself, I pray for each one here this morning, I pray for those watching online, that as we live our life, as we are called to be the salt and light in this dead and dark world, You would help us, you would empower us by your spirit to put on display the very resurrection life of Jesus. That in the way we live, the way we speak, the way we conduct ourselves in our work, in our neighborhoods, Father, I pray that you would enable us to live in such a way that people are drawn in and ask the reason for the hope that's within us. I pray that you give us the boldness and courage to be salt and light in a dark and dead world. Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for his life being lived in us and through us for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.